All right, today we uh, continue our work, my work, but our work if you join me, on 18 Upbuilding Discourses, which is a uh, book by Soren Kierkegaard. I assume that you've listened to the previous episodes, but maybe not. But I also assume that if you are patching into this uh, podcast somehow, if you find it, uh, that you know something about Soren Kierkegaard. If not, I'd encourage you to um, go back and listen to the beginning parts the beginning episodes that I've done so far. I'm trying to be logical about this to some extent and read this book through from start to finish. I've already read it once, but I've been kind of convicted that I probably need to read it again. A sign of a great book, not just a good book, a great book is one that you can read over and over again and either get deeper insights on stuff that you maybe understood to start off with, but just in a deeper way or in a new way. Or to... Uh, catch something that maybe you missed the first time and uh, that's a process uh, who knows why that is sometimes people are uh, not prepared to hear something not in a bad way but they're just not ready uh, it could be for a lot of reasons and um, if they do get it the second time or third time or fourth time even if the thing they heard the first time kind of comes back to them uh, then uh, that's a good thing so today I took a little bit of a step back and I read um, the beginning notes from Howard V. Hong and Edna H. Hong, who were the translators from Danish into English for this book. And um, they interspersed Soren's own observations on his writing in general, but also his writings uh, in regards to this book, along with their own insights. Um, it seems like a good translation. I don't know that for sure, but one would have to have a pretty strong... Uh, understanding of the English language and obviously a strong understanding of the Danish language in order to make that bridge. Uh, there are better translated versions of books than others. These guys, I think, from what I've understood, these two, I assume they're married. Might be brother or sister, who knows, but I assume they're married. Um, apparently did a very, very nice job kind of capturing Soren's spirit uh, behind the words. And the words are like Bible translation. There's like literal translation and there's thought for thought translation. Then there's like living common word translations like the message. Uh, put it in common, uh, more contemporary vernacular. It's a tough business and it requires people that are very, very knowledgeable about not just about linguistics, but also about cultural elements and civilization and context and all that kind of stuff. So and the, this book was not originally written to be a book. Uh, that's one thing I thought about uh, that I didn't have a really uh, firm answer to. But uh, in the introduction from the authors, the translators, um, uh, they note that this was published in several different ways, several different uh, episodes, just like this podcast. And it was combined, I think, towards the end of Soren's life. And I think he tried to sell it. I don't think it sold a lot. Um, and then it was given to a publisher uh, to try to sell and it just, that's one of the tricky things about popularity. You know, there are people that are super, super popular that really haven't done much to earn it. You know, they're just, whatever the culture values, it might be something fairly transitory like beauty or um, the ability to dunk a basketball. I mean, those things have their place. Uh, however, we can agree that, you know, Kim Kardashian is not the... Uh, the equal of Mother Teresa or someone. I recently got in a bit of a Twitter dust up when I called uh, Kim Kardashian accomplished and very attractive. 
And some of the uh, women who read that took issue with uh, several of those characterizations. I had uh, heard Kim Kardashian be interviewed by David Letterman on his Netflix series, which is like this long-form interview. And uh, she kind of surprised me in a bit. I can't say I've paid much attention to her over the last couple of decades. Uh, but she seems to be a pretty intelligent person. She's not stupid. And she's attractive to men. She might not be attractive to women. That's cool. That's what one of the persons on Twitter commented. Is, I'm not attracted to women, so I don't really know. Or she's just conceding that maybe men see it differently. I mean, I think you'd have to be a fool to say Kim Kardashian's not attractive. She might not be her type, but um, I called her super attractive. I think she's attractive to me. Not that I would ever have a chance in a trillion years of getting her to uh, look my way. That's just not even a statement of humility, a statement of fact. Uh, but whatever. You know, I, I made a note also in my initial tweet that generated some dust up that if she wasn't super attractive, she'd probably not be paid attention to, period. Um, so that shows you something about the, the superficiality of our culture, uh, that we value things that are transitory. That not that they're bad, they're just not stable. They don't last over time. Uh, so the human soul is eternal. Uh, that's why it's valuable. Uh, very little else is eternal. So enough of that. Uh, so, you know, when they called this book 18 Upbuilding Discourses and put all the uh, all these kind of um, discourses together and bound it into a book, uh, I don't know what the Danish word for upbuilding is. I assume that the translators got it accurate, but Soren talks about what the upbuilding means to him when he's, when he's kind of quoted in this introduction from the translator. He uh, notes first that he writes kind of for himself. Um, and... Um, I think that's a good premise for creators is you have to do something that you like and something that you enjoy. That said, like the investment that you put into it from the very start is worth it based on what you did because you got something out of it. I wrote, I, uh, I, I wrote a book called On the Edge Transitioning Imaginatively to College. It's probably sold less than 200 copies since it was published about a decade ago. And I was disappointed, for sure. I worked hard on that. It's the, it's the collection of 35 years of working with kids. Uh, at the time, it was like 30 years, maybe a little bit less, 28 years. And also my doctoral work from Tipley University in teenage adolescent development, particularly as it pertains to cognition and college, uh, college planning and preparation and parents' influence and relationship to that. I mean, I took on a big topic, one that was very, very important for the students of my school whose parents didn't go to college, and also people in our society, who, uh, young people in our society who didn't have all the advantages of coming from a household where their parents went to college. There's a lot of knowledge that's associated with the college preparation process and the transition process that kids who come from families where a parent is not college educated or somebody close to the family, they're at a real disadvantage uh, because it's likely that their school has a large percentage of students that, uh, whose parents didn't go to college because uh, we tend to congregate by um, socioeconomic status, you know, and there is school choice in America, as my mentor, Dr. Walter Williams, uh, used to say. It's called uh, buying a house in a, in a strong district that has a strong school system. That's school choice. And some people don't have access to that real estate market, especially these days if you're not as wealthy. Uh, so college-bound uh, kids tend to congregate together in uh, places where there are non-college-bound parents tend to have students who, if they are going to college, um, are at a disadvantage unless the school really works hard 
to compensate for that deficit. Now, I'm going to say this uh, black and white. I don't believe every every young person needs to go to college. I, that's definitely not true, especially these days. There's a lot of debt that's incurred. Um, a lot of times college kids major in things that really don't have a lot of market value, to be honest, at least monetarily. And, and if you go to a really expensive school or something that doesn't pay very well when you graduate, you still may decide to do it, but you financially are going to take a hit and you have a hard time getting out from underneath that debt. Is that right? No, it's not, because there's some very great careers like social work that you need the best people and, and they don't pay particularly well because it's what our society values. We value superficial things. Uh, what can I say? So we don't pay people what they deserve. And I would say that social workers and teachers and nurses and mechanics and plumbers, you know, it's changing a bit with uh, the supply and demand that there's less blue collar people that actually can fix stuff anymore so the prices are going up as well they should that's uh, econ 101 but if somebody wants to go to college and they want to pursue a career and specifically that requires a college degree i wanted to give them every chance to have an equal playing field so that was the purpose of my book so i sold 200 books and probably 100 of them in india which tends to be more motivated in some ways than we are they don't have quite the prosperity that we do so sometimes kids, especially if they want to come to America and they're from India, maybe you would see a book as an advantage. Uh, but I would say I wrote the book because it really benefited me as a Christian. I was trying to figure out a way to articulate the ideas that I had without using specifically Christian language all the time. I think it's a, uh, yeah, I guess it's good in a way that we can use biblical words to describe biblical ideas. Uh, but I believe God is the God of reality, and I was trying to figure out what I believed what I really believed, not what I said I believed, but what I really believed, uh, and to put it in such a way that even a non-Christian could read it and get something out of it. Like a, you could have a Christian author say something that would be valid even if a person didn't come from that faith system, if that makes sense. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote, and I'll probably mess it up, but it's something like, oh, extraordinary circumstances do a lot to make... Uh, ordinary people extraordinary and that is a complete paraphrase I just botched that but it's something about the circumstances making people extraordinary ordinary people extraordinary through their circumstances we kind of see that with Zelensky right now in the Ukraine apparently he was kind of a potty mouth comedian in the in the model of like Benny Benny Hill is that that English comedian that British comedian was kind of a a potty mouth um witty but still potty mouth so apparently Zelensky's reputation of becoming Ukrainian president up until fairly recently was he was kind of a lightweight, smart aleck, dirty, uh, profane. Uh, I don't know. I've never seen it before. I've never seen his work. But um, he's really kind of shown a quality and a sterling side of his soul uh, through the uh, conflict and this war that's been propagated by Vladimir Putin upon the Ukrainian people. And I would say... Uh, a curse on Fox News and Tucker Carlson in particular and the apologist for Vladimir Putin. He is off the rails. He's risking not only the welfare of his own people, but the welfare of Ukrainians, obviously, and, and their right to self-determination, as well as the rest of the world, you know. And that's the problem of being an autocrat. You think you know better. And Donald Trump shares those qualities. Nobody can teach Donald Trump anything. He already knows it all. He's smarter than the generals. He's smarter than the doctors. He's smarter than other politicians. He's smarter than Hillary Clinton. Blah, 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 blah. And it gets tiring because it's not true. 
It may be, it'd be something if Donald Trump was actually true about stuff, but he often talks out of his ass. And there are times he's completely right. I, I'm not sure, and I'm pretty confident, he doesn't do it with a spirit of compassion. He does it with a spirit of self-righteousness and wanting to make people look stupid, and et cetera, et cetera. And he's not the only one that does that. He just does it better than a lot of people. You know, what, what Donald Trump does is he's very incendiary in his, in his rhetoric. And then when people retaliate because they're hurt or they're angry or whatever, then he's got them because they've played into the strengths of how he's honed himself to do that over 50, 60, 70 years. For whatever reason, he's really good at it. So climb into the pit with the snake and get, get bit. So Soren's, uh, get back to Soren here. Upbuilding to him wasn't a sermon. He didn't see himself in any sense giving a sermon or a preacher or using ecclesiastical authority to try to coerce people to believe what he's writing. As we've talked about previously, Soren had a strong anti-clerical um, take on things. He didn't like the Danish church being state-funded and becoming a tool of the state. And he stood outside the um, state church in order to critique it and to uh, call it back to repentance and to live a life of faith and a life of adventure and a life of being radically honest about things, which the church kind of actually dulled all those edges. You know, it was about just showing up and being seen and, you know, seeing your uh, fellow uh, parishioners and maybe making business contacts and looking respectable, but it didn't have a lot to do with the uh, message of Jesus, which is to heal the brokenhearted and bring healing to a broken world. So Soren did never want to play the card of being an authority and to use authority to coerce belief. Um, I'm sure he wanted to get accolades. It's just human to be like that. I think he also realized that that applause soon dies down. And there's very few performers or writers or filmmakers that have a legacy of work that's universally applauded. There's usually critics and there are people that are popular for a spell and then they uh, are no longer popular so he didn't he uh, he offered these uh these writings and these upbuilding discourses first of all um as an offering to god i would probably suspect an opportunity for him to learn uh you know i i find this happens with me and i'm i'm not trying to say that i'm like soren kierkegaard i wish i was but I share this piece of it. When I write sometimes or when I talk, uh, I teach myself because sometimes I put things together that I haven't identified before. Maybe it just coalesces or forms some kind of um, coherence in my own brain. And there's a certain muse-like element to that, that it can be like music or performing, that you get in the flow. And, you know, an interesting way of saying something or being funny or being witty or being profound, you know, the, one thing that is true that if you try to be witty or profound or be funny, uh, sometimes it falls flat because we're, we're trying too hard. So word is offering these is, is a, in, a, in a spirit of um, to be considered, you know. I would say that's probably what he was trying to do. And uh, he did not want to rely on totalitarian tactics to get people to read or agree with him. He was too much of an individualist to be like that anyway. Who knows, maybe he was a budding fascist underneath it all. And how did he offer these things? I would say in a spirit of love. Um, not always. I think there's times that he's going after people and he might be enjoying 
the uh, conflict and the uh, controversy that he's engendering. And that's not a good character trait if somebody is like that. Uh, you know, if they're combative, you know, if that's your, if that's your go-to. Um, I think probably the best way to be is to offer it a spirit of love. Now, this is why, and you can you can kind of walk me uh, walk with me through this because I've thought about this. Uh, being a school counselor for you know three decades, I offered advice a lot, and you know I was probably and I would say probably this is a way of avoiding being 100%. You know, saying this is the way it was. It was it was certainly true to a degree. There were times that I tried to get kids to cooperate. And uh, it's part of working in a system. For example, I wanted students to take hard courses because I knew that our school, what, our job was to prepare these kids to have a fighting chance when they got out into the larger culture of their college campus or you know wherever they were. Whatever, wherever they were, academic knowledge is very, very useful. It's how the system kind of works to some degree. It doesn't mean you don't need other skills. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But an understanding of like history and science and mathematics and English and all these things really contributes to somebody's uh, healthiness as an individual. It gives them a chance to, uh, to, um, you know, to climb the ladder of success. Again, it's not the only thing that you need academic skills, but it's certainly something. We, we get a lot into, into these things like, well, it's book, book knowledge versus like street knowledge or trade skills. I can't stand it when people think like that because that bifurcation is not what the reality is. You kind of need both, you know. If you're going to sign a document that's hundreds of pages long or, you know, whatever, a mortgage, you better understand what's inside of that because if you don't understand how math works and you don't understand, like, legalistic words, you'll sign a, uh, a document for a mortgage and now you're on hook for 30 years and you may not be able to afford it, you know. There may be a lot of things that you just assume are going to work in your favor that weren't, you know. And I always told kids, just because you have like real book uh, knowledge doesn't mean you're prepared for the world. And if you have like with, you know, street knowledge or street cred or um, you know, technical skills or hands-on skills, it doesn't mean you don't need to, to know English. It doesn't mean you don't need to know mathematics. Math for its uh, intrinsic purpose teaches your mind how to solve problems, you know, and whether you use algebra specifically day by day, like you're actually doing an algebra equation on a whiteboard or on a, on a sheet of paper, we use algebraic thinking all the time just to solve problems. And I always explain to kids, learning how to solve from the unknown. You know, that's an algebraic idea that you take what you know to apply it to what you don't know and use a process and you reduce what you don't know to a point where you can possibly get an answer. Now, the world's a big place, and even though it's all based on math, uh, we may not be smart enough to figure it out. Uh, I believe the entire universe is based on mathematics. Uh, that's just the language of God. Uh, we're just not smart enough to completely get that. So when we offer things to the spirit of, uh, you know, humility, but caring about the other person, let's say they just blow us off. They say, you know, fuck you. Uh, you know, or they're just apathetic, which is more common, unless we're like really, really um, abrasive about how we offer the advice. You know, if we offer it in a spirit of cooperation, you know, people will never, <sighs> well, never is too, too far that way. People rarely respond with a spirit of animosity, although these days it does happen. You know, people are just looking for a fight. Social media has sharpened those eyes quite a bit. 
So everybody's getting points by, you know, um, being sharp and incurring blood, bloodletting on others. That's, that's applauded these days by your particular constituency or tribe or mob or whatever. But if we offer stuff with a spirit of compassion and caring and humility and listen, you know, so the advice is contextual and it's not just um, tinny or superficial, yeah, the likely response will be the person will, um, you know, say thank you and may not follow it or might, you know, or, you know, just be apathetic, just not not react at all, not even give the lip service that they were listening or took, it, took heed to it. Now, working in a system, I was trying to use my position, though, to encourage my students to be academic. You know, there's no doubt that that was my primary goal. And I stepped on some toes to do that. I, ha I felt like I had to, in my own limited way, change the system. And I did. Uh, and kids often thank me for it, but it wasn't something they came back the next day and say, hey, thanks a lot for encouraging me to stay in that class. But often when they graduated, you know, in the senior evaluations when we did them, they had good things to say about that because I was willing to hold them up to a high standard and provide the support they needed to get there. I just didn't tell them lots of luck. You know, screw you. You have to do it on your own. I was willing to play a role to help them become that person. I wanted them to do it. Uh, but I wasn't just like, hey, you know. And last year, one of my students said a really cool thing. She said, you know, you do have high standards for us, like she was saying about the students, in my caseload in particular. She was, she was kind of complaining about a teacher that felt she felt was being really, really unfair, unnecessarily difficult and challenging in the course and not providing the support. But she said, you're different. You know, you have really high standards for us, and we know that, but you're also willing to help us get to that standard. And I, I took that as like, man, I'm going to hold on to that because this, this is a student I respect. She's been through a lot. She's a smart kid. Uh, hasn't had all the breaks in life, but she has enormous potential to go far. And I, I took that as like an affirmation. You know, not everybody would say that, uh, but she did. And it's exactly true. That's exactly what I was trying to do, provide the support for the kids to get over that barrier, whatever it was. So if somebody's apathetic or angry about something that we're trying to offer and being encouragement by, you know, it hurts. Uh, nobody likes to be criticized. I certainly don't. I grew up in a spirit of criticism with my, with my father in particular. He had very few good things to say about us kids growing up. And I was a learning disabled kid. I struggled. It hurt my feelings because things were hard for me. I wasn't, it wasn't that I wasn't smart. It's just things were a challenge. And my dad was not very encouraging. And he's, he's accused me of being a surly teenager. But then I have retaliated when, and responded to that by saying, well, you were a pretty shitty dad in some ways. You know, I'm willing to say that because I think it's true. There were a lot of things my dad did right and a lot of things my mom did right but it doesn't mean they always did right. And there were character defects they had as people that really affected us. So, you know, the good thing about being an adult is I can tell my dad that and say, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I don't really care how you feel about it. It's how I feel. I don't have to worry about getting a spanking for having a, you know, a tongue on me or something. So becoming an adult really helped my mental health a lot because I was able to step away and, you know, try to be fair to my parents and compassionate, but at the same time, articulate what my concerns were in terms of how they raised us and the choices they made and, the, and the, essentially to some degree the people they are to this day they're not certainly not the same but they have some of the same characteristics 
So when somebody's critical to an encouraging thing that we're trying, we have to admit that maybe the encouragement was not appropriate. Maybe it was just um, superficial or cheerleading stuff. It wasn't sensitive to the person's struggle. Maybe it came across as being a cliche or a banality or, um, you know, rah, rah, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so we had to first own it, saying, okay, I offer it in a spirit of encouragement, but it certainly, in retrospect, wasn't that. And it could have been that it was flawed to start with, or it could have been the person's reaction to it, that they have a right to r respond in a way that was dismissive of the advice. But if we did it for the right reasons to start with, even if we were technically wrong, if we did it with the right attitude, but we're just um, off our mark, then we should be able to handle that with a spirit of compassion. We shouldn't get angry, you know, because we offer it in a spirit of compassion to start with. How does that change to anger or retaliation if it was not that to start with you know if it was had pure seeds why is the plant now reacting the way it did to the environmental condition it shows that maybe our original intention wasn't that great to start with or wasn't that positive because now that we've been criticized it, it turns from light to dark so quick uh, so if somebody does something in a spirit of love and winds up being hammered for it a spirit of love should be able to persist through that without getting vindictive. It's hard to do. I mean, things get triggered in us too that are not just about that situation, but about how maybe we've dealt with life or what life has dealt with us and how we've responded to it. So I think Soren was offering his observations and some of them critical with a spirit of inquiry and a spirit of uh, upbuildingness. Like, I don't think he was seeking to destroy just to destroy. I think he was trying to build something better. Uh, and his writings come across like that. It doesn't mean they're always easy. It doesn't always mean they're understandable. It doesn't always mean that you're uh, not going to be offended to some degree. Uh, sometimes uh, they say two people will tell you the absolute truth. It's your best friend and your worst enemy. And everybody in between is playing the diplomatic game of figuring out how to say what in such a way as not to be offensive. <laughs> so that's not quite that black and white, but you didn't hear what I'm saying. Thus, this uh, introduction is pretty wise and it's pretty helpful. And I can't believe, again, that Soren Kierkegaard's not a stronger topic of inquiry in podcasts. I just don't get it. I mean, there's smatterings of stuff on the different platforms. And by the way, I'm trying to get this podcast on Google Play, on iTunes, in addition to Anchor and Spotify. I've submitted it. Google says it's on the, uh, on the server, I can't find it when I look for it on Chrome. Lord knows what iTunes is doing. I haven't even heard back from them. Um, but I'm trying. I'm trying to put this out here on a plat on the various platforms so people can stumble across it. There's a chance there's a lonely soul out there or a different type of soul like Soren Kierkegaard, just like me, and uh, is looking for some podcasts about him. Now, there are isolated podcasts or episodes about Soren Kierkegaard, like, you know, somebody who's talking about philosophy, existential philosophy in particular, or great writers, or, you know, whatever. But there's not a site, or a podcast, more specifically, which is on a site, a website, that is about Soren Kierkegaard specifically in his writings. And you can tell, I've already got like three or four episodes, um, and I've only literally covered the first 20 pages of this book and I'm going to go back and reread this because I'm sure in the first 20 pages there's things that I didn't underline to start with 
so this is a gold mine. I feel like I'm the luckiest man in the world that I've discovered that Soren is ignored on the whole by our generation. And there's one person I think we need to listen to more than anyone. And it certainly isn't freaking Trump or the liberal equivalent of Donald Trump because these nutcases and these megalomaniacs exist on both sides of the aisle. Trump just happens to be the epitome of it, in my opinion. Um, but there's plenty of liberals and leftists and anarchists that I do not support, that I think are out to humiliate uh, people who enjoy the blood sport of it all, whose job is to be as obnoxious as possible because that's what their, uh, their constituency wants. Uh, Donald Trump is certainly uh, someone who fits that model from the populist wing. I would say some of his policies have a bit of a conservative piece to them, but I'm, it's not because he's naturally conservative. He's a guy that says he supports the police, et cetera, et cetera. Until the, the Capitol Police, they're trying to do their job. Tough shit then. Uh, but, uh, you know, he has some ideas that are more traditional. Uh, he's certainly not a conservative on his own based on his past record of what he supported financially and what he said. I think he adopted a certain populist right-wing version of conservatism because it's just something that will get him elected. Uh, that's what it is. That's what it turned out to be. He knows who his, he knows who's, uh, who's out there willing to hear him and who's essentially ignored by the other aspects of our political system. Uh, so where is this going to end up? Who knows? But Soren speaks to us. Uh, he teaches us to develop our own voice, to offer our wisdom that we have, if we have it. And again, wisdom does not come through often doing the right thing. It often comes from the wrong thing. Anybody who knows me could look at the acne scars on my face and said, this guy went through something. <laughs> and I did. I was a hardhead, and I still am. I'm, I'm nowhere close to what I used to be in terms of a hardhead. I just don't have the energy to be that person anymore to... To be so, uh, to be such a, you know, raw individual. Um, I've learned not to fight every battle that comes my way and to sidestep a lot of stuff and rather than engage it. And there's a time when I'll, where I'll fight back, but I try to have the facts on my side before I open my big mouth. It doesn't mean I do it correctly all the time. But Soren's really helped me to understand the idea that we offer uh, these things with a spirit of freedom and of compassion and caring. And maybe in a cool way. I like to be cons consider myself as somebody that has some eruditeness. I've worked hard at developing that you know, through my reading of books and et cetera, et cetera. And if people are apathetic or if people are critical, let it not call into question my original motivation for doing so. Because if I wind up getting small-minded about it and hurt and uh, negative and retaliatory in particular, it's a good indication that my motivations were not correct to start with, as much as I hate to admit that. As we love people, as we care about them, we should always give them space to make their own decisions. And even though I would say that I was coercive at work to a degree, I did have a chip in me that said, in the end, I will tell you what I think, whether you want to hear it or not. But I also assume and also acknowledge that you don't have to follow a single thing that I'm saying if it's not part of the school code. Like, you can't smoke in the bathroom or vape in the bathroom, of course. 
Uh, so there's rules, uh, but they're not my rules. They're the rules of the school to protect you kids. But in terms of me offering something that's more voluntary, I have no ability to force you to believe what I believe. So I always had a good understanding that my desk was like a table, that I could lay out a meal that I thought was healthy and delicious, but in the end the kid had to pick up a fork and eat it. So I would say even though I was coercive in my, in my spirit at times, and too talkative and not a great listener always, I did have that chip in me or that understanding in the end the kids had to pick it up and I think that is fundamentally healthy.